Food introduction recommendations for babies certainly have changed over the years. And whether you have a baby on the way, you have a baby with you right now, or your baby's grown up, I think you'll be interested in today's show. I'm so excited to have Dr. Brian Schroer, one of my friends and allergy colleagues, who is the director of allergy and immunology at Akron Children's Hospital, to talk with us today about his exciting new article in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. The article is entitled, Practical Challenges and Considerations for Early Introduction of Potential Food Allergens for Prevention of Food Allergy. And you can find a link to it on foodallergyandyourkiddo.com. Here's the interview after the intro. Welcome to Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with Dr. Alice Hoyt, the podcast about demystifying food allergies, diminishing allergy anxiety, and taking back control. Let's navigate this challenge together with evidence-based information, scientific research, and tried and proven practices. And now, here's your host, board-certified allergist and immunologist specializing in food allergy, Dr. Alice Hoyt. Hello, Pam. How are you doing today? I'm good, Dr. Hoyt. How are you? I'm wonderful. And I'm so excited to have one of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Brian Schroer, on the podcast with us today. Hey, Dr. Schroer. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. We're excited. Um, So today, what I thought that we would talk about, um, really awesome timing, because Dr. Schroer has a fantastic article that was just published in one of our top journals in the field of allergy. Um, It's the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. So it's specifically a journal that is very evidence-based, but is more geared towards clinical practice as opposed to the really hard-hitting research. And the title of his article is Practical Challenges and Considerations for Early Introduction of Potential Food Allergens for Prevention of Food Allergy. So Dr. Schroer, so excited to talk about this article with you. And kind of the first question is, you know, what really prompted you to write this article? Yeah, it's a little bit of a story. Uh, Actually, it's Karina Venter, who's one of the world's best dietitians who's currently at the um, Colorado Children's Hospital, Children's Hospital of Colorado, had invited me uh, and Douglas Mack, who's an allergist who does a lot of food allergy therapy up in Toronto, to uh, write a proposal for the 2020 Quad AI, which is the major allergy meeting, to talk to an allied health professions uh, live session for dietitians about how to introduce both peanut egg, which has a lot of evidence for how to introduce those foods to prevent food allergies, but also to discuss what about sesame? What about tree nuts? What about all the other foods? Even if we don't have evidence of how to introduce these things, what evidence do we have and what kind of nutrition-based or evidence-based or combination of both data do we have to give to both clinicians, people seeing patients to prevent food allergies and to give to families who have kids who want to try to prevent food allergies. What kind of data do we have to talk about tree nuts, wheat, sesame, and things like that? And so we had that session all ready to go. And then, of course, coronavirus hit. And we weren't able to give that session, though we had it all ready to go. But we said, you know, we have this session. Why don't we just write an article? (laughs) And that's essentially the, the start of it. 
Well, I'm so glad you did write it. Um, Pam and I were reading through it and we loved the different topics that you really sort of divided the article into. Um, one of those was shared decision making. And clearly this is an important area for you. And um, I know you well enough in how you practice to know that this is something that you really make it a point to have shared decision making with your patients. Um every step of the way. So tell us a little bit about why you why you find that to be such an important part of your practice, but also in, in the journey of a family who has food allergy. You know, if, um, the little bit of background is my oldest son has a milk allergy. And when he was diagnosed, there was very little collaborative discussion between my partners, essentially, and my family about what type of foods we should either introduce or what type of foods we need to avoid. And during our training, I'm sure you're, you remember this, Dr. Hoyt, that there wasn't really much discussion if there was a positive skin test about what the family thought. There was a lot of situations where the, the allergist community was generally kind of protecting patients by just saying, just avoid the food. Well, when we were training before the LEAP study came out, which is in 2015, that was a study that showed early introduction of peanut actually prevents allergy. And the flip side of that statement is that early unnecessary avoidance also increases the risk of food allergy. Then in that sense, we had to reassess those type of protection statements, right? So in that, mm-hmm. we really needed to think about which foods do we have to avoid and which foods do we not have to avoid? And when it comes to food allergy, if you already have had a reaction to one food, it's very scary to introduce another food. So let's say you have already had a baby react to peanut, um, maybe during the early introduction phase, and you've had hives and the kid has a symptom of vomiting. How is that parent going to feel when they are going to go introduce egg? Because if you have peanut allergy, you might develop an egg allergy. Having the ability to have an open discussion about what the patients are worried about, what expectations they have, what questions they have is really necessary in order to make them feel, make them to allow them to feel comfortable Mm -hmm. introducing a food that may scare them. So that, that may be something for egg. That's also a conversation for a peanut allergic kid. What about tree nuts? So we have to have this conversation in order to try and prevent as many food allergies as we can, because if you either become doctor centered and we say, you do what, as I say, then patients one are probably not going to listen to you very much. And if we just allow patients to, you know, worry about things without using our our expertise and our guidance to help them do things that are scary for them, they're not going to introduce other allergenic foods when they already have one. So that's a, a little mm-hmm. bit of the background for sure. No, that's a, and Pam has had some experience with a kiddo with peanut allergy and then some avoidance of tree nuts as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. Um, She's 11, and so we. she was diagnosed at age two, um, so that was nine years ago, and we were, she had a positive, well, she had the reaction, which led us to the allergist. Um, she had a positive skin test, positive blood work, um, but negative tree nut skin and blood work, or actually just just skin test at the time. And, but yet we were still told to avoid tree nuts. Um, so we basically went from age three to about nine 
where we avoided tree nuts. Um, and really the only reason that we started to introduce the tree nuts and challenge the tree nuts in the office setting was because of a we thought she may have had a reaction to one of the tree nuts. And so that led us to Texas Children's Hospital um, where we wanted to see specifically um, a, an allergist that was specific with foods rather than just, you know, a general allergist because we love our general allergists, but we kind of felt like it was time to see someone who um, was very specific. And, and so she, with her guidance, we were able to, introduce all the tree nuts, make sure that she was okay to eat them. Um, but it took so long, you know, to get there. And so, um, not that our, our first allergist didn't have those conversations with us, but I think that because that just is kind of how it was at the time, you know, that was before the leap study and and before all of that, that we kind of just took it. I did my own research at home. I'm, you know, I'm the daughter of, of a doctor and, and the wife of a dentist. So I'm, I'm very big with researching my own information. And, and it was just what we chose to do as a family. I tell Dr. Hoyt all the time, if I could go back with all the information that I know, we probably would have done things a little bit differently, but we can't live backwards. Um, so I love hearing you talk about that patient um, doctor relationship, because in this journey of food allergy, it's such a personal journey. I mean, you know, all relationships with doctors are personal. Um, but for the most part, you're dealing with children. So as a parent, um, I love being able to go to our new or our second allergist and, and kind of have those discussions, not just with me, but she also has that discussion with her as well. And so it makes it less scary for her. And so that to me is, is just super important and, and something that I really enjoyed reading in, in your art, in your paper. Dr. Hoyt, don't you see that all the time in your clinic? Which part of that story? <laughs> oh, somebody who has a reaction to peanut and they were told to avoid all tree nuts. Yes. And then at some point, you know, yes. new, new ideas come out and they find somebody who is willing to say, let's just introduce the tree nuts and avoid tree nuts that are potentially cross-contacted by peanut. You know, the original reason that your allergist said that was actually they were told by the national experts to protect patients from eating tree nuts that may be cross-contacted by peanut. Right. Well, that is one option, of course. But the other option with shared decision-making would be, if you want to eat tree nuts safely, let's talk together about how to eat tree nuts that aren't cross-contacted by peanuts. Right. Let's identify tree nuts, which ones are tree nuts, which ones are not peanut. We can learn that. Let's work together and do that. Right. And make you feel comfortable doing that. And especially kids in your, in your daughter's age range, having been told to avoid tree nuts basically their whole lives, it can be very scary for that that kid between seven and 13 to even think about eating tree nuts, no matter what objective evidence you show them. Negative skin tests, negative, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. very scary. And that's where we and, are, you know, honestly. You know, we're at yeah. that stage where she should eat it all the time. And I told Dr. Hoyt this, I think, in the last two episodes that we did together, that we don't force it on her as, yep. you know, because even though I know it's what we should be doing. Um, you, you both, you know, have just said that that's probably what sh- we should be doing, but you know, she's at that delicate age where, um, you know, nine years is a long time to be told no. And, um, and she did struggle um, when we thought she had that reaction with a little bit of anxiety. And so, you know, we're kind of now playing that mental health game, you know, 
how far do we go? Um, a, you, you know, how far do we go? But, but we still want her to be comfortable and, and to not have that anxiety towards foods that, you know, a lot of children with food allergy already have. So, um, yeah, we definitely uh, have discussed this a lot. <laughs> now is the time for the plug. Yeah. We're allergists. That's right. We're not your allergist. <laughs> with your allergist That's about right. what you're hearing on the podcast. Um, Absolutely. But I also say that as well because, you know, I, I think it's important for listeners to know as well that my best friend is a food allergist but that's not who I go to, right? You know, I have my local allergist and I have a different allergist because I'm also aware that, you know, in, in our, most of our adult life, Dr. Hoyt and I have not lived in the same city. And so anything she knows about my child is, you know, through things I tell her, she's never, you know, physically examined my child. So for anybody listening out there, I, I do think that Dr. Hoyt has tremendous advice, but I do ask my own allergist. <laughs> Good. And I'm very happy to hear that, Pam. <laughs> um, and so that, that kind of brings us to um, when you're talking about Dr. Schroer, when you're talking about some, some ways that, that you incorporate shared decision-making, are there any other particular strategies? Because I know we also have some docs listening. Are there any other particular strategies that you try to incorporate into your visits with your families to make sure that um, shared decision-making is occurring? Yeah. You know, the, the first thing is to build a relationship with a family, understand their values and their desires, uh, getting their perspective. You know, what ideas do they have about what could happen? what expectations they have, what worries they have. So understand the patient perspective is very important before you start telling patients what they could do. And then when you do the shared decision-making approach, it involves having a conversation with a patient. You know, we all hate to be told what to do, right? When I was an asthma patient as a teenager, they could they could tell me what to do all they wanted, but I did what I wanted. But the allergist I finally saw who said, you know, what do you want from asthma treatment? And I, and they listened to that and, and then they helped me understand what would be helpful to achieve that goal. That's the real importance. So for patient, patients who have food allergies, understanding their worries, understanding their expectations, and then using that information to give specific advice that's tailored to the things that they want, their goals, their, their, their hopes, help them overcome their challenges that they've identified. That's really the, the next step is, is taking that information you learned and then using it to tailor a specific plan for those for that family. I think that's going to be really helpful um, for our doctor listeners, for our parent listeners. Pam. So my um, specific question after reading the article is, you know, I have my 11 year old, but then I also have a nine year old. Um, so for me, when the doctor said, oh, no he can go ahead and start eating, you know, this, that, and the other. Again, after being told for so long, hey, let's not have any of this in your home, that's a very scary thing for me. Um, so I think about that. What? How do you navigate that with with food allergy parents or, or with siblings, you know, to make sure that we're doing the right thing for one, but that we're also doing the right thing for the other who, who has, you know, completely different needs? Yeah, first you have to demonstrate empathy, right? It is scary to have one kid in your house who has a peanut allergy, for example, and to think about bringing a peanut 
uh, into the house in order to prevent the second child from becoming allergic to peanut, that's a scary situation. Uh, and in that sense, one, acknowledging that through empathetic statements, and two, saying, you know, asking the parent what their goals are, right? Is your goal to have one kid with peanut allergy, or is it a goal to try and prevent having two kids with peanut allergy? And okay, if that's a goal, I don't want to have two kids with food allergies. You know, one's enough. Right. <laughs> uh, we both know how, how that feels. What would be ways we can safely bring the peanut into the house in order to prevent the peanut allergy in the second child? Let's sit down and talk about it. What worries do you have, right? Um, I'm worried that if I make a peanut butter sandwich for my now three-year-old, that my five-year-old at that time is going to get into it. Well, there are ways of dealing with that. Uh, I can personally speak to the fact that my oldest son, again, has a milk allergy. And my younger son, who's seven now, would have killed me in my sleep if I didn't have cheese uh, sticks for him to eat. <laughs> you know, and in that sense, okay, yeah, a peanut-free home is something that a lot of people do. People have tree nut-free homes. You know, almost nobody has milk-free homes. And a milk allergy uh, can cause severe enough reactions. It's just as potentially severe as peanuts or tree nuts. All of it are, is scary. It is doable. You can have these foods in your house. Again, addressing the worries that people have heard. I've been told I can't be in the same room as a peanut. Well, that's actually not mm -hmm. true. But a lot of people have heard that. This is common. Let's address that. Uh, we can do proximity challenges in the office where we bring the peanut butter into the room. And, you know, of course, doing it with a parent, parent and patient, knowing you're doing it. And to realize, hey, it is safe to be in here. Right. And if you wanted to take it even farther, you could put the peanut butter on their skin, just like a skin test. You know, we know skin tests are very safe, Dr. Hoyt and I. And reassuring patients that that's true. And if they're willing, hey, let, let me put it on and let's see what happens if it gets on your skin. And when nothing happens, that can be very helpful. But of course, you're not going to smear peanut butter on your peanut allergic kid at home. You're going to be more careful than right. that. You, you can do it. We can work on it together and we'll achieve that goal, which is to introduce peanut the kid who's not yet peanut allergic, and we can also prevent the kid who is peanut allergic from accidentally eating the peanut. That's awesome. Um, a follow-up to that is I think about, I often think about when my daughter is an adult. Now, by that point, hopefully, um, we have a lot of different options in treating peanut out or treating allergies in general and hopefully preventing them. Um, that's, that's my hope. Um, but I think about if she was an adult right now, you know, what about those parents um, who have allergies themselves and, you know, the right thing to do is to, you know, introduce that milk early or introduce that peanut early. Um, how do how, would you, if you've thought about this, um, advise someone then? Because that can be scary as well, knowing that I have a peanut allergy, but I need to, you know, feed my baby this in order to try to prevent something that can kill me. <laughs> you know, how do we go about, or how would you go about um, maybe speaking to a parent or a patient about that? Hi there, this is Alexis from the Hoyt Institute of Food Allergy. Did you know that the Institute is the official sponsor of the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast? And did you also know that you are now able to connect with Dr. Hoyt directly? That's right. 
we are now offering food allergy office hours for parents. These one-on-one virtual sessions are available for parents all across the country. It's an educational session, not an office visit, where you can ask all of your food allergy questions and finally get answers. It's as comfortable as having a cup of coffee with your bestie. Simply click the link in the show notes to schedule and mention this ad. We are so, so excited to connect with parents across the globe with this new service. Okay, now back to Pam and Dr. Hoyt. Uh, One thing I think about that I think will keep Dr. Hoyt and I in business and on our toes the rest of our lives is your daughter's 11 and my son is almost 11. What if they meet and have a baby? Yeah. It's an allergy nightmare. <laughs> but at least they'll, at least they'll know, right? At least they'll know what they need to do and, and they'll love each other for that. <laughs> well, in that, in that case, is it even more important for that, those, those parents that introduce eggs, peanut milk, uh, wheat, sesame, and all the tree nuts mm-hmm. before they develop? the 50 allergies they might be on the way to developing, right? Right. It's very important. But yeah, you know, it is a matter of understanding what things that you have to worry about and what things you don't have to worry about. So, what you know, Dr. Hoyt and I know probably 90% of what we do in Food Allergy Clinic is discuss, yes, we need to be worried about this food. You do not need to worry about all these other foods. And in that sense, you know, let's worry about the things we have to worry about. Let's not worry about the things we don't have to worry about, right? If you as a parent can't figure out how to not accidentally eat something. <laughs> okay, we got to talk about not introducing peanut in your baby. <laughs> right. But I'm pretty sure that we can talk about it and prevent you from ingestion or eating that food allergen. And the good part is your hands have very thick skin. The peanut allergen will not go through the skin of your hands and will not cause allergic reaction unless your hands are covered in maybe eczema, in which case you get your spouse to make the peanut butter preparation for your baby. And that should be something that they are willing to help with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whatever spouse it might be, this is a partnership, I would hope. And all of you can work together to make it happen somehow. I'm confident we can introduce, you know, our potentially allergenic foods in your babies and prevent the allergies to the best of our abilities. You know, and, and I hear you say all of that. Um, and I think it's great. My generation... I think of, of kids, you know, who are kind of tweens right now, you know, before the leap study and all of that, you know, we went to a, a an allergist initially who um, was sort of, let's just go ahead and protect you by preventing, you know, by keeping you away from all the foods to now you're sort of introducing those foods or you are introducing those foods early in order to prevent food allergy as opposed to just staying away from them. So what about us parents who, um, or maybe just a, a few more things of advice or, or just w- what would you say maybe to practitioners for parents like us who um, are just kind of scared, you know? I mean, I, I'm i kind of all for, hey, let's avoid it, <laughs> you know? I know that's, that's, that's what my mind says. I know that's not, you know, that's not necessarily what we, what I'm recommending you do. That's just what works for my family right now. Um, in the stage that we are because of how we were diagnosed and and all of those things. So what do you just kind of sit down with a mama and say, I mean, I know having it in my house is not going to cause an allergic reaction. Um, but I don't know, I, I guess, 
that's just sort of where I am. You know, I, I know the right thing to do, but um, not every doctor talks the way that you two talk. And so maybe my question is, what do you think that we need to do better for the doctors, right? Like, what do you think doctors, um, food allergists especially, need to, and even pediatricians need to know going into sort of this new age of, of allergy? Um, because it's not just, oh, little Johnny Joe down the street has an allergy. Most people know kids with allergies these days. And so, but I don't, I don't think that it's talked about enough in practices. Yeah. Well, let me kind of summarize the two things I heard you say. One is for parents who lived in a world that we all, as allergists, as a community, though, I tried to, my best to avoid this. Uh, we had told people to avoid foods until certain ages to prevent allergies. And now 10 years later, we have actually way more evidence uh, that it, introduction of foods early can prevent allergies, at least for peanut and egg. How do we address that fear? Um, so that's one thing. And uh, then I'll get to the next one in a second. You know, the way I do that is, look, I can tell you what to do, but I, I, always, I just told you before, you're probably not going to do it. <laughs> Let's have a conversation, right? Yeah. I totally get that it's scary to introduce these foods at home. And I tell patients, if you don't feel comfortable after everything we talk about doing it at home, let's do it in my office. I'd rather you do it in my office than not do it at all. Right. And it's always a choice, of course, to not eat it. I just don't want it to be my choice to tell you that you don't, that you, you, you can't eat it, right? So if you choose to avoid the tree nuts and you have peanut allergy, that's a choice you made after a conversation where we did discuss the evidence. And that choice for you and your family is the correct choice, right? I'm not going to say you're wrong right? Uh, in that sense. If you don't feel comfortable, though, giving your peanut allergic kid a walnut at home, okay, we'll do the, let's do the test. If I didn't want to do the test, in that case, the test will change what we do. If it's negative, you will feel better. Maybe you will do it at home. If it's positive, mm -hmm. we'll do it in my office. As long as we have that conversation, then we can have a, a shared decision-making discussion as opposed to you telling me what to do or me telling you what to do, right? As long as we can have that conversation, then we can come together and figure out a plan for you that you feel comfortable with. Because if you don't feel comfortable with it, it it's not going to happen, and that's okay. Um, it's not okay, actually. It would be okay if you decide that it's not for you, that's the right decision for you, and I am okay with that. It's just that if you don't have that conversation, that's not okay. Right. The other thing that you, you mentioned is that how do we try to help allergists become comfortable doing what they very much, for most of their careers, felt uncomfortable doing? And that's a pretty hard question. Yeah. I don't know that any, <laughs> either me or Dr. Hoyt have a great answer for it. But I will tell you that I would suggest parents in general, seem to have been much faster adopters of this approach than most allergists. And given the social media world that we live in now, but we didn't live in when we were all growing up, these families know what they're talking about. And they may have seen the paper we're talking about today on Twitter or Facebook already. They may know about stuff that allergists haven't yet read. Uh, and on certain Facebook groups, at least evidence-based ones, sometimes the parents know more about it than the allergists. I'm going to say it out loud. It's real. It's true. Uh, and 
it's a little bit unfortunate. That being said, you know, continuing education, culture change within the evidence, within the expert base of allergy is really the going to be the driver of culture change within individual allergy practices. Uh, and we may not be able to change the allergists who've been in practice for 30 or 40 years. That's okay. There's a lot of young allergists who have trained since 2015, who have finished fellowship in the last five years, and hopefully they were able to go to a fellowship that had the ability to adapt quickly. But you know, my hope, my, my hope, the hopeful thought I have is that I know Dr. Hoyt and me and, and I both trained at programs that did all the stuff that we don't want to be doing now. And, and both she, me, and a number of our partners, both at the Cleveland Clinic and at Akron Children's Hospital have changed their practice pretty quickly. So I would say, you know, being an advocate for yourself and your family, if you want to introduce foods early with your allergist, is going to be helpful. If you bring it up, the, the allergist is going to be much more comfortable bringing it up too. If they push back and you know that is probably not what you want to do with your family, it's okay to find somebody else who is more compatible with you if those people are available. And that is sometimes hard. A lot of areas in this country don't have um, a lot of allergists available. They don't have, patients don't have a lot of choice. Uh, and that is a difficult scenario for them. Uh, there, there may be an opportunity here in the near future given coronavirus opening up the opportunity for telehealth, for people to see other doctors within their state, for, certainly. So I know in Ohio, for example, I can basically see anybody who lives in the state of Ohio, no matter where they live, and I can start to have that conversation with people that would never have been able to see me in Northeast Ohio before. Seek out those opportunities, find practices that are offering those, those options if you can't find somebody closer to home. And uh, that's how you can advocate for yourself. That's a great point, Dr. Schroer. And Pam has kind of had that type of experience where she's had a she has a great allergist where she is, but not one who focuses his practice specifically on food allergy. And I'm finding more and more that as the field of allergy and immunology, which is what allergists are trained in, as we're trained in both adult and pediatric allergy and immunology, that our world is just really expanding. And so it is um, in in some cases, I would say imperative that we do have some allergists who focus specifically on certain disease processes, just like we have immune deficiency specialists, you know, an asthma specialist that more and more we're having food allergists um, to, to not just take care of patients who have food allergy, but also to provide guidance to our general allergy colleagues on sort of what next steps should be. And then to your point about telemedicine, just really just opening up, um, these different specialists to different patients around the country. Um, that particularly makes me excited that, Hopefully, one good thing that can come out of coronavirus is that some of these state regulations regarding telemedicine can can be overcome so we can have more and continued interstate telemedicine um, to better serve patients. I mean, the rider Louisiana is two hours and forty five minutes from Houston. You're already mm -hmm. practicing and interstate that, medicine, right? It's just now you don't have to spend yeah. five hours getting there and back. It would be pretty nice for you, I'm sure. 
That's right. And, and, and that's, you know, eventually why we chose to go there. Um, because as far as we were concerned, when we were going through the process and, and going every year to our allergist and, and even though I, I knew, you know, I was keeping up with all of the, the research and the new um, studies. Um, when I thought about going to a new doctor, I just kind of always thought Louisiana, right. And we didn't really have that. And so um, after the experiences that we had, that kind of almost made me wake up, even though I knew all of these things It kind of, you know, made me wake up and say, Oh, I need someone specific. Um, Texas was right there. And then I, I remembered, Oh, it's just, you know, hopping a skip away, you know, it's no big deal. And, um, and, we're so glad we did that. You know, we, we made that choice about three years ago, if not more. Um, and I feel like even though I knew so much as, because I am huge on advocating for my daughter, um, I know even more now because I was able to deal with someone like Dr. Hoyt said, who was specific to our specific need and our specific allergy. Um, so yeah, the, the whole, um, being able to, you know, to see sort of interstate um, medicine, I, I think it's just such a positive thing that's come out of such a nasty thing. <laughs> I do want to bet your local allergies um, appreciate it as well, because there may be less opportunity to feel comfortable doing things when you don't have other people around you doing it as well. When they see that somebody else is doing it, they may feel more comfortable to do it themselves. Yes. And, you know, and we had, before we even went to Texas um, to see the other physician, um, we had that conversation with him. And, and I said to him, hey, look, you know, I I think I need to do a little something that you're just not ready to do here. And he was completely okay with that. And then at our last visit, just this, I think we went in January of this, it was right before, you know, everything kind of shut down. Um he was excited because he had just gone to a continuing education course and he was talking about all of the new studies and, and um, you know, I think the patch at the time was still sort of, you know, going through things and the new um, what's the new. Yes. (laughs) Um, And he was talking about that and we were having conversations about, you know, a future plan for my daughter to do these things and even at her age. And so, um, so that was exciting for me knowing that maybe we weren't having those, you know, shared decision-making discussions. And and then we chose this other option for, you know, kind of all three of us. And then when, when I came back, um, he was excited about these things and we finally sat down and had a discussion about it rather than him just saying, you're allergic. This is what we're going to do the rest of the year. Here's your EpiPen prescription. And not that it was that impersonal at all. I mean, he's a, we love him. Um, but even he who has been practicing his profession for so long in a specific way is becoming excited about the new things to come. And that's, um, that's really great to see as well. That is great. It's exciting to think about where allergy is going and sort of the, towards the end of our discussion here, Dr. Schoer, I, I really want to get your take. And I love that you included this in your article, really your take on the different products that are available, becoming available. Um, I know that there's a a lot of discussion amongst allergists, particularly food allergists, regarding using FDA approved versus non FDA approved appro- approved products. Um, right. And so, I would just re and I would just really love to hear 
your your take on that. And I loved your your tables in your article. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, that was one of the other impetuses for having this conversation uh, to do the teaching session at the Quadi was that all these early introduction products were becoming available either on Amazon or in the supermarkets even. And we wanted to get a quick overview for clinicians who may not keep up to date with what these products contain, what doses they have of each food allergen, how much they cost for patients. So we wanted to have a central kind of hopefully um, ongoing updated repository that we can keep somewhere. What do you give Dr. Strower, can I interrupt you for a second? Sure. Could you give an overview of, yeah. of what these products are for, what early introduction is. We talk about it a lot on the podcast, but I know there are definitely some listeners that would love an overview of this and why you included it in your article. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to the broad overview of the article was to talk about what evidence is there for introducing peanuts, eggs, milk, wheat, tree nuts, sesame. These are the top or most common food allergens. And if there is evidence, okay, what does the evidence show about how much you have to eat, how frequently you have to eat it, and then as these new commercially available products come out, what options do patients have and also doctors have to recommend? How do I eat, say, eggs? How do I give eggs to a six-month-old? How much of the egg do I have to give and in order to try and achieve the maximal food allergy prevention? So in that sense, the national guidelines that are being made available for, say, peanut discuss how to use and mix peanut butter or peanut flour or bomba snacks, which are a peanut kind of puff. Well, that's great. We have that information for peanut and it's widely available. Anybody can Google that from the NIAID, um, which is run by Dr. Fauci. I have to say that out loud. And um, you can get that information, but there is not easily available information for egg. There's really no information available for wheat or milk or tree nuts. So we wanted to give people a general a single resource, a table that talked about what is the evidence-based recommendations for how much walnut to give per week, maybe if there is evidence, how much egg. So that's the first line. There is a table in the in the article that discusses for each different type of food allergen, how much would be recommended either based on evidence or at least based on infant nutrition. Again, as vetted by Karina Venter and Marion Gretsch, who's also at Mount Sinai Food Allergy Center in New York City. These are the country's two leading food allergy dietitians. If we don't have evidence for prevention, how much should a tree nut would be okay for infant nutrition so that it doesn't interfere with eating the right amount of fat, sugar, and protein for growing babies? And so their expertise allowed us to come up with a chart that says, you can eat this many tree nuts per week, you can eat this many peanuts, you can eat this much egg, you can eat this much wheat, and it will all be within typical infant feeding guidelines. And when available, use the evidence base to answer how much and how often. And in that sense, from that chart, if you know how much and how often, then you have now two general choices for how to do it. You can go to the supermarket and buy peanut butter. You can go to the supermarket and buy eggs and make hard boiled eggs or scrambled eggs. You can buy tree nuts in bulk at the supermarket. How much do you need to give? And how much will that cost if you use these doses? But again, as it was mentioned before, there are now commercially available products that are being made by various different food companies that essentially try to make this early introduction 
thing a little bit easier. Okay, so now we have this, this chart that says, this is how much you should eat. This is how often you should eat it, at least within nutrition guidelines. Let's look at these commercially available products and say how much food allergen is actually in them. Is it enough based on evidence to prevent peanut allergy? Is it enough egg to prevent egg allergy? And that's where the second chart comes in for the com commercially available products. This is how much, this is which food allergens are in the product. This is how much of each of those food allergens is in it. And this is how much it would cost if you try to do it on a per week basis. So then you as a consumer and other clinicians can look at the cost, look at the doses, and then make evidence-based or informed decisions about which way I want to give my child these food allergens to try and prevent food allergies. So those are the two charts that are available. One is the commercially available products, and then the other one is a conventional product. How much does it cost to buy you know, one third of an egg that you're going to eat twice a week, which is the recommendation for egg? One third of a, a very well done egg tw two or three times a week. How much does that cost? It doesn't cost that much. <laughs> um, in that sense, that's where I hope people can use these charts, both in their clinics, you know, by handing it out to patients, or if you have it available somehow through social media to look at these charts and say, as a parent, which one of these products seems to have the dose that would be effective and can fit within our budget? You know, the benefit of some of these commercial products might be, again, convenience. If it's more convenient and you're, you're willing to spend the money and you're actually going to do it, use the commercially available products. Right? It's certainly better to do the commercially available products than not do it at all, even if the dose isn't necessarily as high as you would want. It is most likely that some is better than none, though we can't say that is for sure. Um, but it, I don't think anybody would argue against that statement right now. But in that sense, if you want to do it and get the benefit and decrease your cost, which is always a side effect of any therapy, right? How much does it cost? Then you can look at these charts and say, this is the way I want to do it. And that, that was the hope for the, this article. These are really, really interesting, Dr. Schroer. I love that you put this paper together because it is incredibly helpful, um, I think both clinically, um, but then it's also something that I know our food allergy families, um, especially families who like Pam has one kiddo who has an allergy and then maybe they're expecting another kiddo or they have a baby um, or they're just, they, they want to stay on, on, on top of where all this food allergy research is coming from, where things are going. Um, because one of the reasons I recommend all of my food allergy patients see me every year and really anyone who has a food allergy see their allergist every year is not just to get that epinephrine auto injector refilled, not just to have those school forms filled out, ideally together, shared decision making, um, mm -hmm. but also to talk about um, any advances because there's so many more advances. There's so many more things coming out um, right. for our kiddos and adults who have food allergy. Well, I love the way you said that, Dr. Hoyt, in that, you know, it's such a nice field to be in allergy where I can see the parents as a patient, I can see a child as a patient, and I can almost help take care of a baby who hasn't even been born yet by answering the parents' questions about this type of stuff. Uh, and then I can follow that patient until I retire, which is uh, hopefully a long way from now, right? So 
it, it's really nice to be able to be in a specialty where you really can take care of a whole family while still being fairly specialized in the stuff that we're taking care of um, and, and really make a difference in people's lives in that way. I completely agree. Absolutely. Well, we have kept you long enough, Dr. Schroer. Oh, it's we okay. Appreciate, uh, we appreciate you being part of the podcast. Um, Pam, did you have any other questions for Dr. Schroer? No, I, th- I think he answered all of the questions I had, but I just want to say thank well, you for sure, because um, I just think so many more parents need to see things like this. And I think um, I just really honestly just want to thank you um, for the way that you seem to practice, because I think that the world really does need more doctors like you and Dr. Hoyt who are willing to take something so scary um, and really make it something that you work on together. Um, And I really, as a parent, um, just as a patient in general, really appreciate that from you. So thank you. First, you're very welcome. Second, I want to uh, give a shout out to the the hard work and dedication and the way that my co-authors also take care of their patients. So again, Marion Gretsch, a dietitian at Mount Sinai, um, Icon School of Medicine in New York City, Douglas Mack, an excellent allergist treating patients up in Canada and outside of uh, Toronto. And of course, Karina Venter as well. I mean, these are all leading experts in the field, pioneers in allergy, uh, and really help push this culture change that we had discussed. And again, I will thank you guys for helping to spread the message in a way that allows this kind of high level discussion of allergy to reach people where they're at in their homes, in their cars, driving home from work, um, you know, while taking, while staying up with a baby in the middle of the night, <laughs> trying to feed them and get them to stop crying. Uh, and you can listen to a podcast. I think this is great that you guys do this. So thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Dr. Schroer, was there anything else that you wanted to add before, before we go? Uh, you know, the, the thing I would add is there's so much options now that we didn't have in the past. That being said, that, that can create a um, tyranny of choice in a way that it can be very hard to navigate. You know, there are a lot more resources now than there used to be in terms of that. But as, as you mentioned, Dr. Hoyt, please talk to your, your allergist about questions. You know, tell them the worries and fears that you have. I think most allergists would, would love to hear it. I feel at times the things I see on social media are just uh, mis, mismatched expectations and, and miscommunication. Not not that the doctor couldn't fix the problem, it's just that they may not have been given the opportunity. So give your doctor an opportunity um, before you necessarily switch and look for the resources that are available. I think social media has been great at that, making this type of research-based stuff widely available in a much faster manner. I would say it's there, just seek it out. And if and when you have questions, you know, uh, find Dr. Hoyt on Twitter and, and me on Twitter and or other, um, resources in your local community and then go from there. You can do it. It can be scary at times, but you can do it for sure. That's exactly right. Thank you so much, Dr. Schroer. You have a wonderful holiday season. I will. Happy Thanksgiving, guys. Wasn't that an interesting interview? I loved it. Dr. Schroer is fantastic. And of course, Pam, podcast co-host, is amazing. 
Remember, I am an allergist, but I'm not your allergist. So talk with your allergist about what you learned on the podcast. And definitely check out foodallergyandyourkiddo.com for more information about food allergy. God bless you and God bless your family. Thanks for listening to this episode of Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with food allergist, Dr. Alice Hoyt. For more information on navigating the world of food allergy, visit www.foodallergyandyourkiddo.com and follow Dr. Hoyt on Twitter at Dr. Alice Hoyt. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Let's take the anxiety and confusion out of food allergy. Food allergy.